Let's start with a story you're probably familiar with. The hour was desperate. The call had to go out. British ships were anchored in the harbor under the darkness of night, and so the city of Boston was asleep. So on the chilly night of April 18, 1775, 700 British soldiers were marching secretly through the streets of Boston, going to the riverfront. They were going to board small boats, row to the other side, and launch a surprise attack on Lexington and Concord. But while the city slept, one man kept watch. Alert in the still of the night, Paul Revere did not sleep. Across town, Dr. Joseph Warren was directing the American activities in Boston. He knew that a messenger needed to be sent at once to Lexington and Concord to warn them. And he sent for Paul Revere, who was a 40-year-old silversmith. And the plan was simple. It called for Revere to row across the river in his own boat, and then board a fast horse and make his way, and to give the alarm. So Revere dashed off into the old North Church. British troops were asleep in the church. They were marching through the streets. He awakened the sexton, that's the person who cares for the church, and he whispered, two lanterns in the belfry now, and the signal would be recognized by patriots across the river in Charleston. Two, if by sea. That meant the British would be coming that very night by boat. Friends helped him row to the other side, and his ship, his rowboat, went past the British warship anchored in the harbor. They landed on the other side. Men from Charleston had seen the signal. They had a fast horse saddled and waiting, and off he rode. Paul Revere stopped at every farmhouse along the way, He rushed up to the house, pounded on the door, and called out, The British are coming. Wake up. The enemy is upon you. This went well until two English officers spotted him. And one one tried to go ahead of him, and the other tried to come up from behind. But Revere, he, he went through a field, got past a muddy pond, and found another road to Lexington. He arrived there, and he started beating on doors, telling them, To arms, the British are coming. And so by early morning... Area shopkeepers, merchants, farmers, and woodsmen were gathered on Lexington Green. Fifty to sixty Minutemen were rallied and ready to stand against the approaching British. As the Redcoats marched into the town green, the first shots of the Revolutionary War were fired. In the skirmishes of the day, the colonists lost 93 men. But the English lost the lives of 273 soldiers. America lost the battle at Lexington, but other Minutemen fought on as the British marched back to Boston. And so the war started. And it all started because Paul Revere made his famous ride for freedom. The midnight ride of Paul Revere was a call through the countryside to wake up a sleeping nation. In the same way God's people, we've, we've received a call. The people of God, the church, we, we have a calling before us, and it's, it's not one we're waiting on. We're not waiting on it because it's already been given. And it was given almost 2,000 years ago to a man named John, exiled on an island. We, too, face a determined enemy, and many, many are still asleep in their beds or even in their pews. 
And so what I'd like to do this morning is to examine the call as seen in the first 11 verses of the book of Revelation. The last book of the Bible, the first chapter, chapter 1. So as we're turning there, just, just realize, just understand, we know there's some disagreements over how to interpret things. Maybe some different understandings on how these different things are going to work out in history. But there's even more that we agree on. And so in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to a servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ who is a faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. May God bless the reading of his word. We need to realize this call comes from the sovereign Lord himself. It it comes down from heaven. It comes down from heaven, from the very throne of God. So this is a sovereign call. It must be answered, and it needs to be obeyed. This call is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's, It's not just a message. But it's a a revealing, an unveiling of a person, and that's the Lord Jesus. And here we start to see him in his divine glory. There are several individuals or groups involved in the message. It begins with God the Father, to Jesus Christ, to an angel, to John, and then to the church. In other words, God gave the message to a son who gave it to an angel, and bear in mind the word angel only, only means messenger. This messenger gave it to John, who then wrote it down in a book, the book of Revelation, and sent it to the seven churches listed in verse 11. And finally, it's come down to us today. Here God unveils the things which must soon take place with an emphasis upon must. It reveals events that take place in the future. 
It records events at the end of the age yet to come. And what, what John writes in Revelation is, by his own admission, the word of God. This is God's word, not John's. And this is, this is one of the great mysteries of Scripture, how God uses sinful, fallible people to write his holy and infallible word. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's given by inspiration of God. And it's useful for our teaching, for our rebuking, our correcting, our training in righteousness. Scripture is the very breath of God, and it comes to us with sovereign authority. To obey the call is to obey God. This book of Revelation is also the testimony of Jesus Christ. What, what God says is what Christ says. God's word is Christ's testimony. The call is not optional. In verse 3, we see the answering God's call leads to a blessing. At the very outset of the book of Revelation, we, we understand God promises a special blessing to those who read here and follow its message. The one who reads, that singular, is, is probably the pastor or teacher who teaches the book. And those who hear are those people who sit under the word and obey its message. And many, it's true, many neglect scripture. Or they neglect this book at the end of the Bible. They assume it's too hard to understand. Some think it's, it's so far in the future that we don't have to think about it or worry about it. And some understand that these events were fulfilled when... Jerusalem was destroyed before the end of the first century. But I don't think that's right. I think our greatest need is to know Jesus Christ, and no book reveals his message and who he is as this. And so those who answer the call are unusually blessed. In verse 4, we see that God promises grace and peace. These two words, grace and peace, they summarize all the spiritual riches that are ours in Christ. Grace is God's unmerited favor. We don't deserve it, but he bestows upon us undeserving sinners and are elevated to the place of his blessing. And we have to realize that the entire Christian life operates by grace. We were saved by grace. We grow by grace. We're empowered by grace. So grace is it's not a one-time event. But it's a continual part of the entire Christian life. And since we have God's grace, we have his peace. This is peace with God and the peace of God. We were once enemies of God, but we're now at peace with him through Jesus. Grace and peace come from God the Father, who is and who was and who is to come. Past, present, and future. In eternity past, he chose us to be the recipients of his sovereign grace. In the present, he pours out his grace upon us, which brings us peace. And in the future, he continues to give us grace and peace throughout eternity. And these are mediated by the Father through the seven spirits who are before his throne. And that sounds strange, and we know there's a lot of imagery in the Revelation. But this is speaking of God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Additionally, Jesus Christ, the Son, is also a source of grace and peace. He is the faithful witness. He preached grace and peace. He's the firstborn of the dead. He died and rose again to provide it. And as the ruler of the kings of the earth, he sits at the right hand of the Father and dispenses it.
We understand then that all three members of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, from them, working together, minister grace and peace to us. It's as if there's three mighty rivers flowing together to create an ocean of grace and peace in our lives. Continuing in verse 5, in John's day we realize the, the individual counted for nothing. Only kings counted, the state counted, Caesar counted. In John's time, the Roman Empire was at its greatest height, covering all of Europe, up into England, over into Germany, North Africa, Egypt, the Middle East. But the oppressed millions of the Roman Empire were nothing. Yet with Jesus Christ, we count for everything. Jesus loves his church deeply. He loves us deeply. He loves us perfectly. And this love is supremely displayed by the cross. It was at the cross that Jesus died and released us from our sins by his blood. And by virtue of his death, we have been made into a kingdom, the kingdom of God. In John's day, Roman citizenship was for the privileged few. But the great masses of the empire were mere slaves and subjects. But it's in Jesus Christ we've been made subjects of a heavenly kingdom. And we've been given great spiritual privileges. And so we have been made into priests. And as a priest, we have access to God the Father to boldly come into his presence. And we are to be his channels by which he works in this world today. This call is a sovereign call. It comes down from heaven's throne to the church with authority over every human voice, over every other group or organization in the world. We have to understand this is only, or this is an urgent call because the time is short. The end of the age approaches because Jesus is coming soon. In fact, he's already in the process of coming. Verse 7, note, note that it does not say he will come, rather it says he is coming. That's the present tense. He's already in the process of coming. The time is near, as it says in verse 3. The time is brief. His coming is now, and so the opportunity we have is short. So the time for action is upon us. When he does appear, his coming will be in power and great glory. It talks about the clouds. Some think these are the, the saints dressed in white robes, the great cloud of witnesses of Hebrews 12. This also might be speaking of the angels. And there's, again, there's some debate over details of these events, but it seems that at some point every eye will see him, and then there will be no mistaking his identity. At his first coming, his divine nature was veiled by human flesh as he was born as a babe laid in a manger. But at his second coming, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. The words of Jesus himself. We understand revelation is biblical prophecy. And when we, when we hear the word prophecy... What comes to mind? We think about the future. It's predicting the future. What's going to happen? And there's, there's some truth to that because we think of the Old Testament prophets who predicted the first coming of Jesus. They told us that he would be, he'd be born in Bethlehem, that he would be, be born of a virgin. They talked about his death and how cruel it was, but this would bring us peace with God. 
But the Old Testament prophets did more than just predict the future. They first and foremost spoke for God. They applied his word to the current situation. But in this case, when prophecy points to the future, it's not, it's not concerned about the time. Is it in 10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years? When it's going to happen, but rather prophecy is about the certainty of the events. No matter how much time passes, we can trust they are going to take place. And I believe there's no better example than in the Christmas story surrounding the birth of Jesus. For 400 years, since the time of the last Old Testament prophet Malachi, God had not spoken to the people. The land of Israel had been overrun by the Greeks, Alexander the Great, and now the Roman Empire was crushing it. But on the eighth day after his birth, Mary and Joseph took the infant to the temple to have their newborn son dedicated and circumcised. And it's there that they meet two people. First, there's Simeon, and and notice what it says. It says he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel, the people of Israel. This means the idea of comfort or rescue. And then there was a woman named Anna, who after meeting them, spoke of him, spoke of this baby, to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. And I don't, I don't know about you, but I could use some consolation. And I could use some redemption. Both of these people were looking forward to the coming Messiah. It had been 400 years. The certainty of the events are the focus. A couple went to bed for the evening. As they lay there, their grandfather clock started to chime. And the wife was counting. 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, bong, bong, bong. But something happened and it kept going. 13 o'clock, 14 o'clock, 15 o'clock. The husband wasn't counting, but he knew something was wrong. He said, honey, what time is it? And she said, I don't know, but it's later than it's ever been. And that's true today. No one knows the hour of his coming, but it's later than it's ever been before. We need to make sure that we are not so comfortable in our beds that we do not answer the call. We need to live our lives as if his coming is now. And this could be the year. And I believe the message is given in this way, so every generation, every group of God's people needs to be expecting it. And as, as, as if we needed any reference or confirmation of who is behind this, we only need to consider verse 8. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. We would say A to Z, A to Z. He's the beginning and the end. No letter precedes Alpha, no letter comes after Omega. God is the absolute source of creation and history. Nothing is beyond his power and his eternal nature. He's unchanging, immutable, never diminishing in power. Ever the same yesterday, today, and forever, he is the Almighty, possessing all power and authority. Third, this is an Unexpected call. Just when the hour seemed darkest, the call came. The year is approximately 95 AD. The scene is a lonely island in the Mediterranean Sea. 
the island of Patmos. This was a barren, desolate, rocky island off the coast of Asia Minor, what we call Turkey today. It was hardly a tourist destination for retired apostles. And it was here that John found himself when he received the final call. And this is, this is so unexpected. God used John at the most unexpected time while he is believed to be in his 90s. This happened in the most unlikely place while exiled on Patmos. During the most severe trial, he was a political prisoner of Rome. In the most unusual way, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day and to fulfill the most incredible ministry to write the book of Revelation. These are the last and final words of Scripture. So we see this as John. He's the brother of James, a son of Zebedee, one of the sons of thunder, a fisherman from Galilee, one of the twelve, the author of the fourth gospel. He wrote three letters, three epistles. He's believed to be the last living apostle. The aged apostle was in exile at Patmos, suffering for his faith in Christ. The island is about 10 miles long, 5 miles wide. It was a penal colony, a prison for the Roman Empire, the Alcatraz of the day. It was a remote place for serious criminals. And John, he's 90 years old. He's in his 90s. At best, he's left alert. He's left to serve out his sentence and probably die there. And at worst, he's maybe laboring in the mines and quarries working on a chain gang. Not enough food, not clothed properly, believed to be sleeping in a cave. He's cold, he's lonely, in prison for his faith. John describes himself as our brother, our fellow companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance, which are ours in Jesus. He doesn't say he's an apostle. He doesn't say he's the leader of the churches. It might seem that the days of his apostolic ministry are behind him. He seems to be abandoned to the island to serve out the remaining days of his life. All the others are gone. He's the only one left. The Roman emperor Nero, 30 years earlier, had launched a great attack against the church. He lit the arenas with Christian bodies in a violent persecution of the early church. This is a, a rather famous painting. We recognize it's the Roman Colosseum. We say, look at the cute kitty. Look at the nice little tiger looking out. We realize what's going to happen. Well, what people often miss are the fires in the background. And working from left to right, someone's lighting them with a stick from the safety of the seats. You realize what those fires are. Then came Domitian. He was worse than Nero. He instigated emperor worship as an imperial cult to hold together the expanding Roman Empire. Christians could not escape. It became law that if you failed to worship Caesar and you you had to appear before a magistrate and you'd receive a certificate saying you did so, And you had to renounce your allegiance to Jesus Christ. We should always remember that God comes into our lives to use us in the greatest ways when we often feel that we're suffering and when we're forgotten. Just remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
And they met, they met the Lord. Where? In the furnace. And John probably thought his life, his ministry is over, but his most significant ministry was before him at this moment. Jesus Christ had commissioned the church to reach the world with the gospel. And those early believers spread the good news of Jesus. Jesus had promised to be with them to the end of the age. But now John's in exile. And it seems the church is facing a dark time. So what's gone wrong? It was at this moment, when everything seemed to be against them, that Jesus spoke to John and issued his final call. And so it, it must be heard. This is also a compelling call. Verse 10. While suffering in exile as a prisoner on Patmos, unexpectedly, John is overtaken by the Holy Spirit on the Lord's Day, on, on Sunday. The apostle is catapulted into the unseen spiritual world. We don't know how to describe exactly what happened. But it would seem the, the apostle Paul had a similar experience when he wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12. He says this, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, the highest heaven. There's three heavens. The first heaven is where the birds fly. The second heaven is where the heavenly bodies are. The third heaven is where God dwells. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. He couldn't speak about this. He couldn't write about it. But John is told the opposite. He needs to write down what he sees. And whatever the case, in the body or out of the body, it's beyond normal human senses. It all begins when John hears a voice, a voice like like a mighty trumpet call. This trumpet-like voice is the voice of Jesus. John is known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. But it's probably been over 60 years since he last heard this voice. He had heard the voice call him to leave his fishing nets and follow. He heard the voice cry out from the cross, It is finished. Now he hears it again, and it's, it's not a normal voice, but a mighty trumpet blast. The trumpet-like figure of speech is significant. Throughout the pages of the Bible, the trumpet is an instrument of power. The trumpets of that day for the Jews were made from ram's horns. In fact, the Jewish word for trumpet comes from the horn of a ram, the name for the horn of a ram. And they were used for many things, but in every case, the blast of a trumpet signals something powerful and compelling. First, the trumpet was used to signal the presence of God. It signified to God's people that God was near, causing them to tremble. The sound of the trumpet announced the very presence, the voice of God. Then the trumpet was used to call God's people to action or to battle, to lead the charge into battle, to gather them together. Third, the trumpet was used to call God's people to worship. In the book of Leviticus, the sounding of the trumpet was used to commemorate a sacred assembly of God's people and to signify the start of the Day of Atonement. And finally, the trumpet was used to signal the impending judgment of God. It was used to warn people of impending wrath. And in the book of Revelation, seven trumpets will be sounded by seven angels 
to pronounce God's wrath on the world. The trumpet was a compelling wake-up call to God's people. The trumpet-like voice of Jesus signaled this to John. It signaled the presence of God. It was a call to war and to worship, and it warned of approaching judgment. And last, I want to say this is a timeless call. This final call echoes down through the history of the church to us today. And it's still being sounded. Verse 11, John is told to write down what he sees. This this call would be permanently recorded in Holy Scripture, the inspired canon of the Bible. Christ commissions John to write in a book what is his last call. And this call addresses every church and every believer from the first century until Jesus returns. Well, why, why talk to the church? It seems to be on hard times. Why not talk to the Roman Empire? All because God's work on this earth is not accomplished through the government. It's not accomplished by getting Caesar on your side. It's only done through the church. God's focus is to speak to his churches who would be light and salt in a hurting and dark world. It's not the government, but the church that God wants to use to change the world. True change only comes from within. And only God working from the church can change hearts. Our country can be no stronger than the spiritual life of our churches. Proverbs 14.34 Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. When our nation was very young, the famous French historian and philosopher, Alexis de Tocqueville, came to America. He wanted to learn what could enable this this group of people to defeat the mighty British Empire. What What was the energy what was, what was the secret? What was, what was the reason this country had grown so much and had become so powerful? And he wrote this. I sought for the greatness of America in her commodious harbors and her ample rivers, and it was not there. In the fertile fields and the boundless prairies, and it was not there. In her rich mines and her vast world commerce, and it was not there. Not until I went to the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness, that I understand the secrets of her genius and power. America is great because she is good, and if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. We shouldn't be surprised that Jesus is addressing the churches in Asia Minor, not the Roman Empire. The key to changing the world is the church, not the government. The seven churches are located in seven cities. Why these seven? They're, they're not the most prominent churches. Why not, why not address the church in Jerusalem or in Rome or in Alexandria, Egypt or in Corinth? Well, these seven, they were representative assemblies with regard to their spiritual condition. What Christ says to them speaks to all types of churches from that time on. It's also likely these are the churches that John had a close relationship with in his ministry. These seven churches are all situated on a road that connected them to one another. 
It was along this road that a messenger would travel to these seven cities. When John wrote the scroll of Revelation, it would have went to the first church, which is Ephesus. And the messenger would present the scroll to the pastor of the church, who would read it publicly to the congregation. He would make a copy. Then it would be sent on to the next church, and then the next church, and the next church. So all seven churches received the message. All these churches were within 35 to 40 miles of one another. And like Paul Revere sounding his alarm throughout the New England countryside, these, these seven churches would then dispatch the final call throughout Asia Minor and the world throughout the Roman Empire. Whatever became of Paul Revere? After the Revolutionary War, he went on to become a noted silversmith in the young nation. He even set up a foundry to cast church bells. He made 398 bells. Most of them weighed over 500 pounds. 75 of these still ring in New England steeples. To this day, to this day, the, his legacy, the legacy of Paul Revere, rings throughout America like his famous ride. And to this day, the message of Revelation must not be lost or forgotten. I know it's hard to understand, but as God's people, it's God's final words. And we need to work with it. We need to wrestle with it. And we need to look forward to the day when Jesus returns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Ancient words, ever true, changing me, changing you. Let's, let's take this to heart. There's so many demands on our time, but we need to make space and make room. And we need to fill ourselves with your word. And so as your people, let's, let's think this year, let's commit this year to knowing you better, to serving you. And we're just grateful that we've, we've been given a call. And we thank you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.